Uh, this is Michael Osterlink back with another dose of fine wisdom. That's going to be hashtag fine, F-E-I-N, wisdom. Here with Bruce Fine, constitutional scholar. Morning, Bruce. Well, thank you for inviting me again, Michael. It's always a pleasure to, to discourse. It's great to talk to you. So uh, James Clapper recently said that we're at the worst point in our quote-unquote global war on terror. It's worse now than it ever has been, including up to the time of 9-11. It's been 14 years or so, trillion dollars or more. Talk to us about your thoughts. Yes. It's a, a viewpoint, uh, <clears throat> Michael, expressed not only by the Mr. Clapper, the chairman or the director of national intelligence, but the, the head of our joint chiefs of staff. I think it would be fair to say it's a consensus of those who work at the highest levels of the intelligence community director of the CIA. Uh, and what's truly stunning, after acknowledging after 14 years staggering expenditures, say approaching a trillion dollars probably, uh, staggering number of uh, strikes, bomb strikes, uh, uh, planning, collaboration with others, ground forces, warring, 14 years, much longer than all of World War II, that we are in a worse position now than we were at 9-11. And what becomes very staggering is the omission of any of these intelligence gurus to even ask the question, maybe what our strategy is, is flawed. You know, If you spend that amount of money and that amount of resources and the problem is worse, an ordinary person would think maybe we probably have a fundamentally wrong conception of the nature of the problem. I mean, it's something that conservatives recognize very readily in fields of education and medical care. We multiply three, fourfold the amount of money spent on education and health care. We have a less literate society and a less healthy population. You figure, hey, something's wrong here. The money is not correlating into an output that is suggesting any advance. Uh, and one of the reasons is obviously uh, these uh, so-called gurus have conflict of interest. They want more money. Uh, they just suggest, all right, the reason why we haven't solved the problem and it's gotten worse is we even need more money and resources. It's a little bit like General Westmoreland, then head of our forces in Vietnam, uh, calling for another 200, 300, 400,000 troops so we have one or two million in Vietnam. Then if we proceed down the same crazy path, then ultimately you know, we'll find nirvana. Uh, now, I think that this is very, in, there are a couple of things that are very instructive. First, there are even stories today that the largest problem that ISIS is confronting is internal dissent. We know these people are fanatics, they're bigots, they don't know how to manage people, they're power for the sake of power, uh, and if you leave them alone, they will self-destroy. And especially because we're thousands of miles away, it's not like there's going to be a fallout into the United States. They're operating thousands of miles away. There's not been a single person in the United States who has been hurt or threatened or killed by ISIS. Not one. We have 308 million people. Three hundred, yeah, yeah, 320 million, is, uh, I think, is our population. So if we step back with these understandings, one, their internal dynamics in ISIS that are causing it to fray, if we give it enough time. And second, that all of the money, all the resources have made the problem worse. Now, the, the, it seems to me the clear evidence suggests we need to stop doing what's enabling ISIS to become stronger, or international terrorism become stronger. And what are we doing? It's twofold. One, we have really since World War II attempted to interfere 
in the internal political dynamics of every country in the Middle East, either monetarily with finances, with weapons, with overthrows, and we overthrow Prime Minister Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran in 1953. We're putting money behind Mubarak at one time and then al-Sisi at another time. We have all sorts of deals with the Saudi Arabian I didn't even know they're probably the, the most religiously bigoted uh, group of rulers in the history of the world, despite the fact that 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. We had at one time King Hussein was on the CIA's payroll. You know, we are doing all sorts of deals with the Persian Gulf states, with uh, the Fifth Fleet there and giving them money and air bases and trying to manipulate their political systems, you know, choosing who's to be the next president of Afghanistan <laughs> and South Asia, so that what this ends up meaning to those who are oppressed by all of these regimes, because it's fair to say that there's not a single regime in the Middle East that even comes close to being democratic other than Israel. But all the, but Israel's not the source of the, the international terrorism threatening us. And so if you're in these countries and you're being oppressed, you'll say, who's our real culprit? It's the United States who's propping up these countries. I mean, look at a country like Kuwait. You know, it's invaded by Saddam, and I'm not trying to defend him, but Kuwait's been run by a dynasty for three centuries. There's no freedom. There's no self-determination in Kuwait. Not a single Kuwaiti soldier stayed to fight for the, the Al-Sabah dynasty. We went up there, we propped up the whole country. Uh, that's just one example of, of, of the rationality of living in these countries and seeing that the United States is a collaborator in their oppression because we're helping and manipulating the governments that are so, so oppressive. Uh, and that obviously creates resentment. They feel the only way they can get a change in their government is not internally fighting the United States. So that's one element that's causing the international terrorism to be directed at us. Now, we don't celebrate international terrorism at all. But, you know, when Sunnis and Shias are fighting thousands of miles away, you know, they're not hurting the United States. Even as gruesome a thing as the Rwanda genocide between the Hutu and the Tutsi, you know, it doesn't threaten the United States or the genocide in Cambodia. Those are terrible things, and as human beings, we're very commiserable. We grieve the deaths there. But we need to think about what's best for the United States, you know. We want our beacon of liberty to go undiminished, and to the extent it can serve as an example abroad, great. But otherwise, that's our best contribution to world peace, to world democracy. Uh, not going abroad, say, in search of monsters to destroy. But the second item that complements the intervention issues that cause resentment against the United States is that we chronically so inflate the danger of the international terrorism that it makes them attractive to 18, 19, 20-year-olds to say, wow, now we're joining the, the New York Yankees of international terrorism. And when you're young at that age, you don't know anything. You know, your life is basically meaningless because you don't have any sense of context of the arc of history, the arc of your own life, the arc of humanity, you know, to leave an imprint that's philosophically mature and philosophically um, wise. And so by creating you know, this image of ISIS and at one time Al-Qaeda, you know, was, is stronger than Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin, Emperor Hirohito, we make them attractive to these young crazy people and we tell them that they're so strong that they can come to the United States and they're a national security threat so that's how they that's their calling card they want us to attack them because my gosh if the United States of America 
with trillion dollars of national security expenditures. The greatest army, navy, air force in the history of the world needs to attack us. We must really be powerful. And when you have basically an otherwise philosophical empty life, this is something. Well, let me ask you, so <clears throat> ISIS is operating in Iraq and in Syria. Do we have any obligation, since we're the ones who destabilized Iraq to begin with, to assist in them defending themselves against ISIS, is my first question. And then Syria, we also helped ISIS there by, quote-unquote, training the moderates, arming the moderates, which ends up being ISIS and Nusra and Al-Qaeda and all these other guys. You know, so what, what, what obligations do we have to fix the mess that we helped not completely create, but we helped to create? Yeah. Well, it's a, an agonizing <clears throat> question to some degree. You know, I think that it's not only ISIS in Iraq and uh, in Syria. We also have ISIS now in Libya that's filled the power vacuum we created when we overthrew Qaddafi. We now have ISIS in Nigeria with Boko Haram. Uh, they may be spreading as far as Pakistan. Uh, but I think that your question assumes that if we decided we wanted to ameliorate or diminish the ISIS problem, we have the ability to do so. Even if just because our goal is laudable doesn't mean that we can carry it out. I may want to fly a 747 over a mountain, but I don't know how to pilot it. I'm going to crash anyway, even if all of my motives are totally benevolent. Uh, we still have you know, moral culpability in destroying these countries, uh, but there really isn't any way that we can correct the mess that won't end up probably creating even a worse mess. I mean, what are we going to do if we, suppose we defeated ISIS in Iraq. I mean, what's the country? It's almost an extension of, of uh, Iranian uh, fanatical Shias who will persecute the Kurds and the Sunnis. So we, we kill one monster and we get another monster. Is really that a moral improvement? Um, I, I, I highly doubt that. And the same with regard to, to uh, Syria. Suppose we wipe out ISIS and it means that President Assad then becomes more solidified. And he's a total, complete, you know, uh, uh, bigoted uh, oppressor himself. Is, it will really have a moral advance in Syria if ISIS is destroyed and Assad who's guilty of all sorts of war crimes, remains in power. So it, if there were a clear path, I think, from where we are now to some more enlightened dispensation, then, then there's an arguable case we, we have an obligation to stay. But there isn't. And, and therefore, all it's going to mean is we just become more complicit and more bloodshed. And, and people of the United States, we ought to remember when we're trying to fix it, we're asking men and women to risk that last full measure of devotion. For what? You know, to change ISIS for a, a Shia oppressive state in Iraq or to risk your life so you can solidify Assad in, in Syria? That's just an obscenity to ask an American to do that. You mentioned the Kurds. Do we have any obligations to at least arm them? <laughs> So they can defend themselves against the Shia and the, the Sunni ISIS. Well, I mean, I have I, I've examined you know to the extent that I read voluminously, you know, warfare. I, I've never known a single group to have been defeated because they ran out of bullets and, and Kalashnikovs or AK-47s. They when it comes to fighting, it, weapons aren't what win wars or not. I mean, the that were true, we would won the Vietnamese War long ago, which we didn't. They were coming down on wheelbarrows and primitive weapons. So I don't think, of course, you obviously want weapons, but I don't believe that the weapons, number one, are really critical. You got weapons otherwise. And number two, half the time they end up in the hands of our enemies. 
because they get captured. I mean, we've given all sorts of weapons to the Iraqis, you know, and, and, and now they're in the hands of ISIS, you know. So it, it ends up being a, a boomerang and, and totally ill-advised in, in my judgment. Thank you, Bruce.